all majestic and wonderful and heavenly Father. Thank you for being the one true and living God. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who has revealed to us the truth through your word, and that if we live and abide by it, we can be in fellowship with you. Father, bless our studies from the word of God. May we glorify you and honor you by meditating and considering very deeply the grandeur and the truths that are found in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening. Good evening, dear friends. It is a blessing to be able to stand before you this evening and study with you the word of God. I certainly appreciate you studying with me from the scriptures. I hope and pray uh, that our studies together will be beneficial to us all, that we can grow in Jesus and equip ourselves further to bear good, good works uh, for the glory of our Heavenly Father. In keeping with our current Bible class schedule, uh, as the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, one of the things we want to do in order to keep with our schedule is we want to start a new book study in this video. Uh, we have finished the book of Hebrews. We did a 13-class study on the book of Hebrews. We finished that up this past Lord's Day and beginning today and going throughout the next couple of weeks or next few weeks, we're going to be studying John's epistles. John's epistles. We're going to study 1 John, we're going to study 2 John, and we're going to study 3 John. And so please take out your Bibles and go over into the book of 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. As you can see, John's epistles, which are located uh, towards the back of your Bible, they're not very long. Uh, 1 John is only five chapters, and 2 and 3 John are a chapter each. They're not very long books, but they are very rich books. They are inspired of God, and they are profitable for us to become equipped and complete in everything that God desires us to be. And so we're going to study John's epistles over the next few weeks, and as we get ready to go through and give an overview of 1 John chapter 1, let me just spend a few minutes giving you some background information for this book. I want to give you some background information, and I want to remind you that we do have outlines. We have Bible study outlines for our First John studies. Uh, these are located on our Facebook page. They're located uh, on our website. And if you are a member of the Monta Vista Church, you should see a link uh, to download these worksheets ahead of time on the Family Talk email that goes out on Sunday mornings. And I certainly want to thank my brother, Brother Brian Sheely, for all the work he does behind the scenes and helping me get these materials to, together. Uh, I certainly could not do this without him, and I'm very grateful. So let's go ahead and just give an overview of 1 John chapter 1, and let's just start with some background info. Let's start with the author of the book, the author of 1 John. You see, it is generally agreed upon that the writer or the author of this particular book 
is John. John. John, that is John the Apostle. Not John the Baptizer. Not John Mark, who would write the Gospel of Mark. No, it is generally agreed upon that the Apostle John is the writer uh, of the book of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. This is the same John who was the brother of the Apostle James. If you remember, the Apostle James was the first apostle to be murdered for the cause of the gospel. We can read about his death at the hands of Herod in Acts chapter 12. John was the brother of James, and both of these brothers were referred to as the sons of thunder. They were called the sons of thunder. They were also the sons of a man named Zebedee, and they were both fishermen by trade. Uh, them and the apostle Peter and several other of the apostles were fishermen by trade. And John, the apostle John, he also wrote the gospel of John. The gospel of John. Remember, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is also said that John is probably the writer of the book of Revelation. And so if he, if he wrote the gospel of John and Revelation, that means that uh, he contributed to five of the 27 books that make up our New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, Revelation 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It is generally agreed upon. And another thing we can say about John is when you read about what took place when Jesus was dying on the cross, it is very interesting how Jesus Christ, one of the final things he did before he died was he gave the Apostle John the responsibility of caring for his mother Mary. When you read John 19, specifically there, you can read about Jesus giving John the mission of taking care of Mary uh, since he was going to die. And so that shows us that not only did Jesus care a lot about his mother, and he wanted to make sure that she was provided for because it is very likely that she's a widow at that time. Joseph is dead. But it also shows us that Jesus had a lot of confidence in John. He had a close relationship with John. You got to have a close relationship with a, with a particular person if you're going to give them the responsibility of caring for your mother after you die. And so John was so close to Jesus that he cared for Mary, in fact, another hint we have that John was especially close, especially close with Jesus is when you read the Gospels, you see that John, John seemed to be one of three apostles who was in Jesus' inner circle. When you read the Gospel, you see that while there were 12 apostles, there were 12 men who were very close to Jesus but within those 12 men, there were also three particularly who, who were especially close with Jesus. There were three who went places with Jesus that the other nine did not go. Those three who were especially close to Jesus appear to be Peter and the two brothers, the sons of thunder, James and John. Peter, James, and John seem to have been especially close to Jesus. We know that because in Mark chapter 5, it is those three who are with Jesus when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. 
they go into the home with Jesus to raise this little girl from the dead. The other nine did not witness this miracle, it appears. And then in Matthew chapter 17, we see that when Jesus went on the mountain and he was transfigured, it was these three apostles, Peter, James, and John, who witnessed this. They saw the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw his glory on the mountain. They saw him conversing with Moses and, and Elijah, and they heard the very voice of God say that Jesus was, was his son in whom he was well pleased. James and John and Peter were the three apostles who witnessed the transfiguration. And then in Matthew chapter 26, if you remember, it was James, John, and Peter who were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were with Jesus when he prayed to his father on three separate occasions in the garden. And when Judas showed up with the soldiers to betray Jesus, and they arrested him and brought him before Caiaphas, James, John, and Peter were eyewitnesses to what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so John appeared to have a very close relationship with Jesus. This apostle is the writer. More than likely, he's the writer of the book of 1 John. And then as far as the date of this book goes, it is generally agreed upon that the book of 1 John was written uh, between about 80 and 90 AD. It was one of the last books to be written as far as the New Testament is concerned. And I think that that date is especially important to highlight because, brothers and sisters, if it is true, and I think the evidence is strong for this, but if it is true that the book of 1 John was written between 80 and 90 AD, then that alone blows out of the water the doctrine, the 70 AD doctrine. The 70 A.D. doctrine. Someone says, what is the 70 A.D. doctrine? Well, the 70 A.D. doctrine is a doctrine that essentially says that every prophecy of the Scriptures, every prophecy concerning Jesus specifically was fulfilled prior or around the time of 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., if you recall, that was the year in which the Romans went into the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, and essentially on that occasion or during that very tough period, that was when God destroyed the Jews as a nation. 70 A.D. was when God used the Romans to destroy the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple system. The 70 AD doctrine suggests that every prophecy concerning Jesus was fulfilled at or before or around that time. That is the core of that doctrine. That doctrine suggests that the second coming of Jesus occurred in 70 AD. The resurrection occurred in 70 AD. The final judgment, it all occurred in 70 AD. And for that doctrine to have any kind of credibility, which I believe it doesn't, but if it, if it is going to have any kind of credibility, then that means that it must be proven without a shadow of a doubt that the entire New Testament 
was written before 70 AD. It must be proven for this doctrine to have any kind of credibility. It must be proven that the entire New Testament was written before 70 AD. And while I will agree with the fact that probably most of the New Testament was written before 70 AD, I don't think you can say that when it comes to the writings of John. I think you can say all of Paul's writings were written prior to 70 AD because Paul was dead before 70 AD. And I think there's a strong argument that Peter's writings were written prior to 70 AD and at least three of the four Gospels were probably written prior to 70 AD. I think you can make a strong argument for that, but I don't think you can make a strong argument for that when it comes to the writings of John. It is generally agreed upon that John's writings, all of his writings, were written after 70 AD. And that is important to highlight because in John's writings, particularly in the book of 1 John, John makes a lot of prophecies, a lot of predictions about the coming of Jesus. He makes a, a lot of predictions about, about how Jesus is going to come again and a judgment will take place. John makes several predictions or prophecies concerning a coming of Jesus and if 1 John is written after 70 AD, which I think the evidence leads to the fact that it was, then that means that that doctrine is a false doctrine. That means that the final coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus to this world, it has not occurred yet because if it had, then why is John talking about another coming of Jesus? throughout the book of 1 John. And so keep that in mind as we study 1 John, that this book is one of the few books that seems to have been written after the destruction of Jerusalem. And it talks about the coming of Jesus and the judgment. And as far as the audience and the purpose of the book goes, let me say that it is generally agreed upon, while we can't be certain of this, but it is generally agreed upon that the audience of the book of 1 John is the same audience uh, that, that he has when he writes Revelation, and that is the churches that are in Asia Minor. Maybe even specifically those seven churches of Asia. For those of you who have studied the book of Revelation, then you know that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, John tells us exactly who his target audience is in that book. It is the seven churches of Asia. It is the seven churches that were in Asia Minor, modern Turkey today. John wrote the book of Revelation while exiled on the island of Patmos. It appears that the Roman government had, had punished John by putting him or casting him away into Patmos, a little small island. And from there, it is generally said that he wrote the book of Revelation and he wrote it to the seven churches of Asia. In fact, I believe Revelation 1 even says that John wrote Revelation from Patmos as a prisoner. And it is very likely that he also may have written 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John from Patmos 
or at least somewhere in that vicinity, some even say he may have written these books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from Ephesus. So he's probably trying to encourage the Christians that were in the region of Asia Minor. And as far as the purpose of the book goes, I think as we study this book, you're going to see that the book of 1st John has several important purposes. One of its primary purposes was to warn these Christians against false teaching. False teaching or false teachers, particularly, probably Gnostic teachers. Gnostic teachers. You see, during the time of the first century, Gnostics were a big problem for the Lord's church. They were plaguing the church at a tremendous rate. And for those who wonder what is a Gnostic or what the word Gnostic means, my friends, the word Gnostic just means to know. It means to know or to have knowledge. You see, in the first century, and I think this concept has continued to plague the church even until this day, but in this context, in the first century, there were false teachers there were false teachers who even came from among the brethren, and they claimed to have special knowledge. They claimed to have special knowledge from God, even more special knowledge than the apostles who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. These men claimed that they knew things from God that other people did not know, and one of the doctrines they promoted is the idea that all flesh, all flesh, is inherently evil. All flesh is inherently sinful and that a man can't really control what he does in the flesh. And one of the big parts of their doctrine concerning Jesus is they promoted the idea that Jesus did not come the first time in the flesh. He did not come in a fleshly body. Instead, he has some sort of spiritual body. They denied the true nature of Jesus while he was on the earth. They denied the fact that he was both fully God and fully man at the same time. Gnosticism was a big problem for the first century and second century church, and I think John is going to deal with that false doctrine quite a bit throughout this book. And then a second purpose of this book was to promote love among the brethren. Love among brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, the word love, and the Greek word here is the word agape. The word love is used at least 51 times in the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is only five chapters. And yet it talks about love over and over again. The word is used over 50 times throughout this short book. And then thirdly, a third purpose of the book of 1 John is to talk about biblical fellowship. Fellowship, how Christians can maintain fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus Christ, fellowship with the Holy Spirit and the apostles and with one another. This book talks a lot about biblical fellowship. And then fourthly, this book also is designed to give Christians confidence in regards to their salvation. This book is designed to give us confidence in regards to our 
current standing with God if we are members of his church. You see, so often as Christians, and I can't begin to tell you how many Christians I have met who possess this attitude, but so often as Christians, we walk around doubting our salvation. We walk around in fear in regards to our standing with God. We, we, we feel like we can't really know if we're going to heaven until we die or until the judgment day takes place. So often Christians live their lives doubting their salvation. But when we study the book of 1 John, my friends, we're going to see very clearly from John, the apostle, that God doesn't want us to live our lives like that. God doesn't want us to live our lives doubting our salvation. Instead, God wants us to have confidence. God wants us to know right now that we are in a right relationship with him, that we are in fellowship with him, and that if we died today, well, if the Lord came back today, we would be on our way to heaven. John makes it very clear in this book that God wants us to have confidence in regards to our salvation, not doubt. And so those are just a few fast facts concerning the background of this book, and I hope that can uh, at least set the stage for some of the things we're going to study. And so let's go ahead and just read chapter 1. Chapter 1 is very short. We'll read the 10 verses of chapter 1. We'll make a few comments. We'll just give a general overview. That's the purpose of these classes. We'll give a general overview of chapter 1. And then that, that'll be our study. 1 John 1 and verse 1. John says, what was from the beginning? Notice that language carefully. What we have heard, what we have heard, John and the other apostles. What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father. That's a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the source of eternal life. And he was with the Father, and he was manifested to us. That is, he was manifested to his apostles. John says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, and we confess our sins, He, referring to God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay, let's break up these verses into two parts. First, look at verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. In the first four verses of this chapter, brothers and sisters, John is beginning right away with a defense against Gnosticism. He is beginning right away with a defense against Gnosticism. After reading these verses, there is no doubt, according to what the apostle says there, that Gnosticism is a false doctrine. 
Gnosticism is a false doctrine. In these verses, John is making it very clear that Jesus, when he came into this world, he came in the flesh. He came in the form of a man, a man with flesh and blood. And so all flesh can't be inherently sinful and evil if Jesus came in a fleshly body. Notice what he says. Going back to verse number one, in verse number one, he says, what was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? Does that language remind you of anything else in the Bible? It certainly should. It should remind you of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, begins with these words, in the beginning. In the beginning, before there was man, before there was beast, before there was even the world in which we live, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. That's how the Bible begins. And then when you look at the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John written by the same person, John begins that book in the Gospel of John chapter 1, John chapter 1 and verse number 1. Look at how John begins even the gospel of John. He begins it, John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word, that's a reference to Jesus, became flesh, flesh. Notice, even in the gospel of John, John is is, is, is emphasizing how Gnosticism is a false doctrine. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, John, with these words, in, the, in John 1 and verse 1, and in 1 John 1 and verse 1, he's beginning both of these books by verifying the deity of Jesus. He verifies the fact that Jesus was there in the beginning. He was there before the world was. He was there before man, before beast, before plants, before the sun, moon, and stars. He was there in the beginning with his father. The idea there is Jesus is eternal. He is deity in nature. He is God. He possesses all of the aspects and essences of God as God's son. Jesus was there in the beginning, and John also says that when he came into the world, he came in flesh. So that means that he was both fully God and he was fully man at the same time. John is beginning the book of 1 John by verifying the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was there in the beginning, and when he came into the world, in flesh, as a man, John says, going back to these verses in 1 John, he says, we, the we, there's a reference to himself and the other apostles, the other disciples of Jesus. He said, we heard him. We personally heard Jesus. We heard his voice. We heard his preaching. We heard his teaching. We heard his prophecies. We heard him. We also saw him. We heard and we saw. We saw his miracles. We saw his glory. We saw his suffering. We saw his betrayal. We saw his trials. We saw him die on the cross. We saw his resurrection. We heard Jesus. We saw Jesus and we also touched Jesus. 
we touch his flesh, we can ver verify and testify firsthand that he came in the flesh. In fact, if you remember in John chapter 20, in John 20, we can read about Thomas, the apostle Thomas, touching the risen body of Jesus. Thomas said, I won't believe that he's been raised from the dead unless I see his risen body and also unless I touch it, unless I touch where the, where the, where the nails were driven, where the spear was driven. Thomas says, I got to touch it, and Jesus let him touch him. Jesus let him, let him verify firsthand that he was raised in the flesh. And so John says, we the apostles, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. All of this, my friends, is designed to verify two things. It is designed to verify that Gnosticism is a false doctrine, that Jesus did come in the flesh. They saw his flesh. They heard him speak in the flesh. They touched his flesh. And then secondly, this information here is also designed to emphasize the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Eyewitness testimony. You see, we got to understand that when it comes to Jesus Christ, Jesus is a historical character. He's not some made-up person like Spider-Man or Captain America. He's not some figment of man's imagination like Peter Pan. No, Jesus was a real person. Jesus was a historical character like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. Jesus was a real person who walked on the earth and there were eyewitnesses to his majesty. There were people who said we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. We experienced him. John is verifying or, or emphasizing how he was an eyewitness to Jesus. We have eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. John says, I saw Jesus. I spent time with Jesus. I knew him personally. I knew him personally. And then John also refers to Jesus in those verses as the word of life. We saw similar language back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and verse 14. The idea that Jesus is the word of life means that he is the embodiment. He is the embodiment or was the embodiment of God's word while he was on the earth. He was the source of eternal life. He spoke the truth. He was the source of truth, and he was sent into the world by the Father to reveal the truth to mankind. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He's the source of truth. His words allow us to gain access to eternal life. In fact, John talks about the process in which God ordained to give us the truth. In John, the 16th chapter, go to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, please. And I think it's important that we add these words from John's writings to what I'm about to talk about. Keep your finger at 1 John. We're going to come back there. But in John, the 16th chapter, in verse number 12, John said these words, John 16, verse 12. John wrote these words from Jesus. Jesus is speaking to his apostles here. 
And he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth, not just some of the truth, but notice all of the truth. For he would not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, that is, whatever he hears from Jesus, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. When you put what Jesus says there with what John also says, going back to 1 John 1, verses 2 through 4, there we see clearly the process of communication from God to mankind. The process of communication from God to mankind. God could have chosen to speak to us in any way he desired, but he chose to do it in this way. He chose to do it in a very specific way. And so what did God do? How does God communicate with us? Well, notice what the scripture says. First, you have Jesus. And I wish I had a, a slide to show you this, but just picture this in your mind. You have Jesus. Jesus is the source of truth. Jesus is, was the embodiment of truth. Jesus has the words of eternal life, and he gave that information to the Holy Spirit, John 16, wherever the Holy Spirit hears, Jesus is the source of truth. Jesus gives that information to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, John says, going back to 1 John 1, and in verses 2 through 3, John says the Holy Spirit gave that information to the apostles. In fact, we even saw that back in John 16. Jesus told the apostles, and he's talking to the apostles there, not me and you. He's talking to the apostles. The Holy Spirit is going to reveal to you not just some of the truth, but all the truth. He is the spirit of truth. He's going to reveal the truth to you. Everything I want mankind to know, I'm going to tell it to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to tell it to you, and then John says here in 1 John that they, in turn, proclaim that truth, they preach that truth to people in the first century, and they also wrote it down. They wrote it down so that future followers could have the same information that they had in the first century. So you have Jesus. Holy Spirit, apostles, then me and you. Jesus gives it to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals it to the apostles, John 16, 12 through 15. And the apostles, John says, he says, we proclaim it to you. We, we saw it. We heard it. We proclaim it. Verse, verse number four, he says, we also write it. We write it down. What we heard from the Holy Spirit, we wrote, we wrote it down so that you can also know the truth. Jesus, Holy Spirit, apostles, me and you. That's the process of communication between God and man. And why did the apostles write that information down? Why did Jesus send the Holy Spirit to the apostles 
And the Holy Spirit revealed the truth to the apostles, and the apostles preached it and wrote it down. Why did God go through all the trouble to make it so that we could know this information? Well, John tells us, going back to the verses, John says that it is important that we know this information and believe it because that's the only way we're going to have fellowship with God. John says that this message that they proclaimed and wrote down from the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to know and believe because when we know and believe it, we can have fellowship with God the Father. We can have fellowship with God the Son. We can have fellowship with the apostles who they say were, they were also in fellowship with God and we can also be in fellowship with one another. Fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus, fellowship with the apostles, fellowship with each other. That word fellowship that is going to be used throughout the book of John, it comes from a Greek word that means sharing. It is one of the most abused words in religion today. So often as believers, unfortunately, we only use the word fellowship to talk about eating fried chicken and, and eating a meal in each other's home. That's not really how the Bible used the word fellowship. It doesn't use the word fellowship to talk about sharing and eating coffee and donuts and fried chicken and pizza. Instead, the Bible used the word fellowship to talk about a sharing or a joint participation or a joint action in regards to a spiritual relationship. A spiritual relationship. John here is using the word fellowship to talk about a sharing or a joint action or a joint participation in spiritual matters. Having communion with God, having communion with Jesus, having communion with he and the other apostles. That's what John says. John says, and we don't believe the doctrine given by the apostles, we don't have fellowship, communion, with him and the other apostles and with God and his son, Jesus Christ. You see, when we follow the true doctrine, when we follow the words given by the apostles, John says we get to share in the peace and the happiness and the hope that comes with being in a relationship with God. As Christians, we are in fellowship with each other because we follow or we share in the gospel and we're also in fellowship with God, the Father, and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and even the apostles. We'll talk more about this fellowship, this word fellowship or communion as we move on. But please understand, it is an abused word. It is, is an abused word in religion today, but it means sharing, participation, joint action, particularly in spiritual, in a, in spiritual relationships. And then in verses 5 through 10, we find a contrast between light and darkness. And this still goes with the idea of fellowship. We learn that when it comes to light, God is light. God is the source of light. And he also walks in the light. He's holy. He's righteous. He's the complete opposite of wickedness and darkness. God is the light. And when we follow the words of the apostles, when we follow the inspired text, guess what? We, we walk in God's light. We walk in God's light. We practice the truth. We're able to be in fellowship with God and with each other. We receive the benefits 
of the blood that was sacrificed at Calvary. That's what John says in those verses. John says that if we're going to be true followers of Jesus, we must walk in the light. If we're going to really be in fellowship with God, then we must walk in the light. See, based on these verses, we learn in verses 5 through 7, we see that the true test of fellowship with God is not just saying we're in fellowship with God, not just claiming to be in fellowship and have a relationship with God. No, the true test of fellowship with God is walking in the light. Walking in the light, walking in the truth. From these verses, we see that Christianity requires more than just talking the talk. We also got to walk the walk. We got to walk in the light. We got to walk in the, in the path that God has laid down in the scriptures. Only then will we be in true fellowship with God. But unfortunately, John says in verses 8 through 10 that sometimes we, we do lose that fellowship with God even as Christians. In verses 8 and in verse number 10 of chapter 1 of 1 John, John says that Christians, and when he says we there, he's talking about himself and other Christians. He's not talking about people of the world there. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There John is saying that Christians are capable of sinning. Christians are capable of violating the will of God and being out of fellowship with God. If we say that we have not sinned as Christians, John says we're liars. We're calling God a liar because God says the opposite. Even as a Christian, I've sinned against God numerous times. And you've sinned against God numerous times. There have been times when we all have fallen out of fellowship with God. But thankfully, even though that has happened to us, John says it doesn't have to stay that way. John says that we don't have to stay out of fellowship with God because we have an advocate. We have an intercessor. We have a defender or a counselor. We have someone who has made it possible for us to be brought back into fellowship with God. That's Jesus Christ. You see, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because we came into contact with that blood when we were immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins, even though we sin as Christians sometimes, we can be brought back into fellowship with God. We can be brought back into the light once again. How do we do that? Well, verse 9, John says, if we, again, the we there is talking about himself and other Christians, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our sins, if we repent of our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us. God will forgive us because of the blood of Jesus when we confess our sins as Christians, when we turn away from those sins and repent and God will also cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, that, that means that it doesn't matter what sin we may have committed as Christians, God will forgive us for anything. God will wipe away any sin we've ever committed in our lives, whether it's lying, adultery, murder. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what you've done against God because of your advocate, because of Jesus Christ, God will forgive you and wipe those sins away completely if you confess your sin and humble yourself before him. 
That's the only way we're going to be brought back into fellowship with God. When we sin as Christians, we must confess our sin and trust that God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of every unlawless or lawless thing that we've done. And so, three things I want you to take away from chapter one. First, take away that John begins the book by talking about the testimony of himself and the, and the other apostles. They saw Jesus, they heard him, they experienced him. He also talks about the process of inspiration. Jesus, Holy Spirit, apostles, then us. Jesus, Holy Spirit, apostles, then us. God, God's word comes through his son. Jesus is the truth, the source of truth. The Holy Spirit revealed that truth to the apostles. And the apostles preached it and wrote it down so that we can know it today and so that we can be in fellowship with God today. And even though sometimes we fall out of fellowship with God because we sin, thankfully, if we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us and bring us back into fellowship with him again. And so that's essentially chapter 1 of 1 John. We'll study chapter 2, Lord willing, this coming Lord's Day, and I appreciate you embarking and engaging in this study with me tonight.